Next thing I know, I hear a knock at the door. I look through my blinds. I look outside. There's news media trucks staked out in front of my yard. I'm like, yo, what is going on? This season of Half Forgotten History, we're partnering with Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. I love the Sprinter Van. It's always a smooth ride, whether I'm headed to the course to play around or to the stadium for a really good tailgate. And just like the world-class athletes we talk to on the show, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans go the extra mile. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. This week's guest is a little spicy, a little controversial. What isn't controversial is his production on the football field. Third all-time in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns. One of the greatest to ever put on a jersey. But because of the way he was perceived, fair or unfair otherwise, he put on a lot of different jerseys during his NFL career. You know him, of course, as T.O., Terrell Owens. Third-round pick out of UT Chattanooga in 1996. Winds up in the Hall of Fame. And even his Hall of Fame situation became very controversial. He can't escape it. Sometimes he can't even explain it. Here now, the one and only T.O. Well, first of all, I gotta say, this is kinda cool. This is the first interview we've done in the car. So, T.O., where are you and what have you been doing in the car today? Uh, I am in uh, Los Angeles. I'm in California. Uh, I was in Huntington Beach uh, doing some uh, you know, workout rehab type of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, you guys caught me in the midst of uh, trying to get home. And, and now I'm, I'm here, pulled over in a parking lot talking to my guy, Trey Wingo. All right, well, listen, as long as, as, long as you're pulled over, that's the biggest concern. I, I didn't want to be, no, no, no zooming and, and driving at the same time. So uh, you all. said you're doing some rehab. You okay? Is everything good? Oh, yeah, just body maintenance, you know, just trying to stay yeah. active and, uh, you know, keeping the body healthy, all that good stuff. Now, are you are you officially officially retired? I know you're in the Hall of Fame, but there was a long time where you wouldn't say you were retired. So, are you now officially done with football? No, I I never actually retired. I wasn't never ever given the opportunity to officially retire. I mean, if you think about some of the guys that have given been given so many opportunities to continue to play, then I felt like I should have been in that same boat. But for whatever God for reasons, whatever reasons, uh, I was never given that opportunity. So. To your point, I never officially retired, but that's not to say that I cannot play. That's not that I'm aspiring to play or working out to play, but knowing that my skill set, knowing my knowledge of the game, like I said, God knows, like I always say, never say never, but clearly there's nobody's going to give me an opportunity to play but I know I, I could still play the game. In your mind, let's say someone signs you and you go onto the field, like what do you think you could contribute in a game today, right now? Um, definitely. You think about third down situations, you think about red zone, um, obviously my knowledge of the game, and given, like I said, the relationship of a, a coach or a team or what have you, that's where I feel like I would be beneficial. Um, at the end of the day, like I said, I know that there are guys out there like, oh, well, he's too old. He can't do this. He can't do that. That's what's wrong with America because everybody tries to put themselves in somebody else's shoes to say they can't do this and they can't do that because maybe they can't do it. Um, I'm obviously one of those guys I feel like if you see me play, if you see me around, uh, how I work out, how I train, how I eat, um, I'm one to always say that I'm one of those athletes that can defy the odds. So at the end of the day, again, you're going to have also, you're going to have those detractors or the naysayers that say, oh, well, he's out of his mind. He can't take a hit. Well, who plays the game to take hits anyway? Yeah. So uh, for me, like I said, understanding a coach, put being put in the right situation, there's no doubt, like I said, I could play the game. Could I go in right now and play 60, 75 snaps off the, off the rip? Absolutely not. I would obviously have to get myself in shape. But if you think about third down situations and you think about red zone, that's 20 yards, 20, 25 yards at the most. You can't say that I wouldn't be able to contribute in some way, shape, form or fashion. All right. So we're putting this out there as a, as a highlight reel. Tio still available as, as a free agent <laughs> to get well, out there know, and get back always, and play. Right. That's always going to be a, a teaser for, for everyone, of course. Yeah. So so let's start with your start in football. You, you sort of joined just to be active in high school because you were you were a skinny kid right growing up. Uh, yep. Skinny, scrawny. I think when I left high school, 
in uh, 92, I was literally probably like about maybe six one, probably 180 pounds. That's that's soaking wet. And now you're seeing guys like Devontae Smith, who, you know, is 166 pounds. So things things have changed <laughs> a little bit. But but right. you went to UT Chattanooga and you did everything there. You played basketball, you played football, you ran on the four by 100. What was the thing you enjoyed most about your athletic career at UTC? Oh, for sure, playing basketball. That was uh, yeah. that was really kind of like really the highlight um, of my four years there. Although I did play football, but I never really thought I would play beyond the collegiate level. I only got recruited there because of a guy in high school um, that they were recruiting heavily. And they came down, they was watching uh, tape on him, and they saw me make a few plays here and there. And I think unbeknownst to a lot of people, I never, I never really started, uh, maybe started maybe one or two games. And that was due to the guy that was in front of me. He ended up getting sick on a Friday night. And so I ended up filling in for him uh, being next up on the depth chart. And that's when I kind of, like I said, I had an opportunity to play. I ended up scoring um, that game, but I never started uh, throughout my high school career. I played basketball. I ran track and I played baseball in high school. And so basketball was my love. And so when I went to UT Chattanooga on the heels of someone else, um, I got a scholarship. And then after my freshman year, in which I didn't play very much um, on the football team, um, our, our, our then coach got, got fired. The next coach uh, came in. Um, that was Tommy West. And so um, after that football season, I asked him, I went up into his office and I asked him if I could play basketball. Um, obviously, I had to walk on and I had to try out for it. And so he basically posed the question. He says, he says, can you play basketball? And I said, well, I played in high school. And he goes, well, those guys down down that they were actually practicing at the time. He's like, those guys down there, they're recruited to play to play basketball. He said, you know it's a bit different. And he says, you know what, I'll let you try out just as well as a number of other guys uh, on campus, um, you know, came to the tryouts uh, that they had open uh, to make the basketball team. I went out, I tried out and I ended up making the basketball team. And I played three years there. I played my freshman, my sophomore year through my senior year and uh, ended up starting. Play, played the like, NCAA tournament. Absolutely. Um, and again, I, my, my senior year, um, obviously, I, I got better in, in playing football. And so um, the, the sports information director and all those guys, they wanted me, they, they pulled me in and they asked me like, yo, do you think it's a smart idea to, to play basketball? You know, you have an opportunity to play in the National Football League, but that's how clueless I was to my skill set. And really the really just the thoughts of me playing in the National Football League. I just didn't see myself playing at that level um, based on what I had accomplished in in, uh, in football there at UT Chattanooga. So I didn't quit basketball. I continued to play on with my, my senior year. Um, I did have pro days, just like some of these guys are having now, um, just not as organized and, and so technical. But um, my basketball coach, Mac McCarthy, he knew that, you know, coaches, recruiters or what have you, uh, scouts, I mean, um, were coming in to possibly work me out and do pro days. I had a couple of those days. And so he gave me some time to, to go uh, kind of train for, for that a couple of days. And when those guys came in, we did the 40, we did the, the shuttle, we did, you know, all the agility stuff and so I did that and so my stock kind of rose in those individual workouts in those pro days and the fastest time that I ran on grass was probably like in between it was it was consistent I wasn't a fast guy I wasn't known for for my speed so I improved upon that you know working with a couple of track guys but ideally my times were around like four five two four five five and then when I went to the combine in Indianapolis, my time, my, my time recorded was a four, six, three. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause I think the 40 time is one of the most overrated things ever. Cause you're the third leading receiver in terms of touchdowns and, and receiving yards. Jerry Rice is atop that list. Michael Irvin's a hall of famer as well. None of you guys were blazers. It's, it's not about, no. can you run the fast 40? It's, can you play football and can you play fast football when you have the ball in your hands right it's uh obviously you have track speed which is you know the game of uh, any game especially the national football league football is predicated on speed so you know obviously when you have these scouts and gms that are assessing talent that they're investing a lot of dollars in with these guys um of course you want the fastest guys you know out there but you know for me um i knew that i didn't have 
you know, game speed at that time. Um, I didn't necessarily, obviously I didn't have track speed, but I got faster and gained speed as I played the game. Um, and that was predicated on things that I did in the off season with my off season workouts. So you, you drafted in the third round in 1996. And, and I believe, and I'd love to get your take on this. I think the 96 wide receiver draft is the single greatest draft for any position in the history of the draft. Because Hall of Famer you uh, went in the third round. Keyshawn went number one. Terry Glenn was a very good receiver. He had Eddie Kennison, Eric Moulds, Hall of Famer Marvin Harrison, Bobby Ingram, Moosin Muhammad, Amani Toomer. I mean, the list of receivers that came out in 1996, I think is unparalleled. Yeah, but I don't think anybody would, you know, would have known that I would have been part of that class, you know, yeah. uh, had you thrown but Joe just Horn, out. too, by the way. Joe Horn, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, it's just a testament, really, uh, really that you don't necessarily, especially now, you don't have to go to a top Division One school. Clearly, I went to a Division One AA, uh, similar to uh, Jerry Rice, who went to Mississippi Valley State. There was a lot of similarities in, in, as far as, you know, our path uh, to the NFL. Clearly, had I had the the ambition, um, the really the, the the set goals of being the greatest receiver like Jerry Rice did um, when I went into the National Football League, clearly my stats probably would have been a lot better than they were and where I finished up statistically. Um, I, I I understand. I consider myself just an athlete. I didn't consider myself, you know, uh, a, a receiver by by the standards of some of the guys that you mentioned. You think about Keyshawn Johnson who played at USC. Um, you think about the guy that I played behind when I got drafted with the Niners who played at UCLA and J.J. Stokes. J. J. Stokes. I wasn't yeah. known for – yeah, I wasn't known, you know, for – the skill set and the caliber of player those guys were. I literally just said I would. I developed a passion uh, for the game. I understood, you know, kind of where they drafted me and pretty much the projections and and what they expected of me based on my draft status. But I had a strong dissatisfaction of being mediocre when I was in high school and when I was at UT Chattanooga. I was a realist that I realized that I wasn't as good as those guys were in high school or college. But based on the coach's assessment of my skill set and my talent, I didn't get on the field right away. So that's what drove me to to really play and develop my skill set and enhance, you know, some of my deficiencies as a receiver um, as I did. That's what enabled me to to become the Hall of Famer that I am today. But I wouldn't have been able to do that, number one, without my my trainer and buddy Prim, uh, who lived in. Uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, that I acquired after my third year after the after the catch um, that I made uh, against Green Bay in that wild card game, and three three notable uh, receiver coaches that coached me during the course of my career. That's Larry Kirksey, that's George Stewart, um, and David Cully um, uh, when I was in Philly, and 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 uh, and Ray Sherman when I was in 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 Dallas. Those four guys, especially George Stewart. They constantly instilled, especially George Stewart and Larry Kirksey early on in my career, they saw the raw skill set that I had and they saw where I could, what I, where I could go and who I could become based on my first few years there with the 49ers. And trust me, I can't say enough about what George Stewart and Larry Kirksey did for my career. How much did it help not only having those coaches, but knowing that you were there with Jerry at the time? And, and what did you and learn from seeing what Jerry was doing? I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that, um, you know, obviously not to discount anything that Jerry did. Um, but I was a quiet kid, you know, going into the yeah. National Football League. Um, and, and by the way, that would shock some people who, who think of T.O. <laughs> now. Like, what do you right. mean he's a quiet kid? But that's true. There was an evolution for you. Right. Because, again, like I said, I was a realist. I knew that. Um, when I stepped on the field, and I think that's the portrayal that the media had of me throughout the course of my career, and I, and I, and honestly, a lot of it was unfair as far as you know how people perceived me, my character, things that they heard about me in the locker room, things that possibly happened on the field, off the field, or what have you. But when I stepped on the field, on the football field, as I told you, I didn't consider myself a football player. I considered myself an athlete, and I, I became so competitive, and 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 had a passion, developed a passion to become the best receiver that I could be, 
I saw, as you said, I saw Jerry Rice on an everyday basis. I got a chance to watch him up close. I got a, I got a chance to watch film of him in practice. I got to film, I got to watch film of him in games. And again, Jerry was very accessible. Um, anybody that has asked me about our relationship, they probably thought that there was some type of friction there. For whatever reason, there was never any friction between Jerry and I. Jerry made himself avail available, but he was one of those guys he led by example. You've heard the stories. He always at, was at the front of the line. He, he was always one of those guys that, you know, was uh, so meticulous, attention to detail, um, so precise in his route running, um, the precision, the timing in which the, the West Coast uh, offense is predicated uh, from. That's what I learned. That's what I, I, I adopted to and I adapted to at the same time. So um, I, I learned so much and I soaked in so much just from watching Jerry. And even when Steve Young and other quarterbacks were, you know, they had that rapport and they had relationships with, you know, George, uh, George Seifert or when uh, Bill Walsh came on the field and they were talking about certain things. If I was an earshot of a distance away, trust me, I didn't say anything, but I was always listening. I watched that communication between Steve, uh, Steve Young and Jerry. And I basically said when he was talking to him, I felt like he was talking to me. When my coach, uh, Larry Kirksey or, uh, or George Stewart was talking to, uh, talking to Jerry or some veteran, I stood back. I felt like they were talking to me at the same time. I was very uh, attentive, uh, observant, and I was very absorbent of information uh, directly and indirectly. T.O. the sponge is what we're learning. He was taking it Absolutely. all in. So, <laughs> yeah. so why, don't, why, why don't we take a quick break right here? We'll come back. We'll talk about some of those catches you made and some of the other stuff that made headlines uh, as T.O. played through his entire career. We're back with T.O. right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans with options like blind spot assist and active lane keeping assist, plus MBUX voice command technology for directions, weather forecasts, comfort control, and more. Mercedes-Benz can be ready to go the extra mile. I use it every time I head to the golf course. The handling is amazing, the ride is smooth, and trust me, you never run out of space. Thanks again to Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans. Back with you on this episode of Half Forgotten History with uh, Terrell Owens, who was going the extra mile to do this uh, interview in his car. And of course, we're sponsored by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans this year, who always go the extra mile. And you know there were there are certain moments in your in everyone's career where it's it's sort of the spotlight changes. And I think you mentioned the game, uh, the wild card game against the, the Packers. That had been a bad game for you. A couple of drops yeah. hadn't gone well, but on the play where you absolutely positively had to have it, Steve Young somehow rifled that thing between four defenders, and you held onto that ball and cradled it uh, for the game-winning touchdown in the postseason. What did that catch in your mind do for you and your career? Well, Trey, you're being awfully nice. You said a couple of drops. Uh, it was a, uh, it was, it was a, it was you a were pretty nice bad. Come into the show. I don't want to, you know. It, it wasn't your best day. Let's put it that way. Absolutely, but it's not how you start; it's how you finish. And I tell my 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 kids that uh, I try to relay that to kids that ask me about advice and and trying to navigate through their. Uh, uh, their uh, their their life of, of trying to become professional athletes or just anything in life in general. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Um, but back to the question at hand, um, it, it didn't start well. Um, again, at the end of the day, I contribute a lot of the end of that play to, 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 to Steve Young. Because if you think about it, I mean, he, he had Jerry Rice on the other side of the field and he had J.J. Stokes. These guys obviously had more experience than I did. And he had the great hands of, uh, you know, number 84, Brent Jones on the field. Yeah, so to absolutely. think about it, you know, Steve Young could have clearly forced this ball to the greatest receiver of all time in Jerry Rice. But a credit goes to him for being so cerebral and sticking to what he saw. Um, it was cover two. It was pretty much that way uh, on that 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 coverage uh, on the last few drives or the last you know couple of plays leading up to the catch. And so I saw that the middle of the field was wide open. And prior to the catch that I made, um, Steve Young you know threw the ball on a comeback route out to uh, JJ Stokes and it almost got picked off. But I knew on that particular play. I, that particular play that I almost got picked off, I was wide open down the middle. So when I went back to the huddle, I don't know, I think it may have mentioned, mentioned something to Steve about the, the middle being open, but I saw 
if we ran that play again, in which we did, it was just a different uh, play on the outside. We had to take a shot, Trey. We had to take a shot uh, to give ourselves an opportunity to win the game. And so when they called the play, I was pretty much lined up in the same uh, the same position in the slot. Um, I, I stuck to my keys, just as Steve Young stuck, uh, stuck to his keys as far as what uh, what defense was uh, was drawn and we were faced with. And I basically did the exact same route. And I basically just went my depth and crossed the, the safety's face. And as soon as I, I looked to the inside, I saw the ball coming straight down the middle. And so at the end of the day, I just had to concentrate on the on the catch. And that's what I did. And as soon as I caught the ball, it was literally like a bang, bang uh, type of play. Uh, Darren Sharper hit me and a couple other guys. And I remember just hitting the ground and I knew I had made the catch. And so literally I thought instantly I thought about my grandmother. And so how I was raised, how I got to where I was and just remaining faithful and just believing in yourself. And that's yeah. ideally what I did, no matter what had happened, you know, the three quarters be before that and all the drops that I had, um, I knew that, OK, this is the play that that counted and this is the one that mattered. Do, do you think that launched people looking at you differently as as uh, as a receiver, that one play? It was a stepping stone, uh, kind of a, uh, a catapulting of my career. Um, considering, like I said, who's who's to say what my career would have been been like had I not made that catch? Um, so uh, definitely, that was one of the highlights and uh, uh, obviously springboards for for the career that I end up having. Um, but like I said, I couldn't have done it, you know, obviously without you know Steve Young. And like I said, I didn't even know uh, until highlights uh, after the game that he almost tripped and fell, um, yeah. you know, dropping back, you know, in his uh, on his drop back, and so. Uh, I'm just very fortunate and just giving, you know, like I said, I gave thanks to God. As soon as I hit that ground, I'm telling you, I immediately thought about my grandmother um, and just knowing that, like, if you believe in yourself uh, and it's always, like I said, you have these coaches that always talk about the next play uh, mentality. That's honestly what I had on that particular play. And throughout the course of the game, um, I almost got down on myself. Um, I, I, I actually kind of foreshadowed kind of like, OK, toward the end of the game or the end of the game, had we lost the game that I knew that I would have been the goat of the game. And that wasn't the goat in the greatest, uh, greatest sense. So um, at the end of the day, uh, I'm just very fortunate that I had the support literally of my teammates, my coaches. They kept having faith in me and encouraged me to go out there and just block out what it had transpired, you know, for three quarters and go out there and you know, make the next play. I, I just remember the raw motion of your face, what you're talking about after that catch. It was really something Absolutely. to see. So then the other thing that I really remember of your days in San Francisco was on Jerry Rice's last home game, December 17th, 2000, against the Bears. It was going to be his last send-off uh, at the stick, and you go out there and set a single-game receiving record, which I thought was really interesting because this was really right. the torch had been passed, and it was going to be Jerry's last game, and you just go out and grab 20. Like, how did that happen? I'm, I'm actually mad because there was a few minutes left in the game. I, I wanted to get probably like 22, 23, 25 catches after I'd known, <laughs> of course after you did. I had known, after I had known that I had broken the record, but I had no idea that I was close to a record being broken at that time until I got around like maybe 15 or 16 catches. And then uh, people start saying that, you know, I was close to a record um, that Tom fears held, uh, you know, for 50 years at that time. And yep. so ultimately I end up breaking the record with 20. Um, and as you said, it was so, uh, I mean, I guess it was so apropos that it was sort of like a, a passing of the torch, a passing, uh, a transitioning of, you know, what Jerry had become or was at that time and what I was becoming. Um, and yeah. so again, I was always, I felt like a complimentary receiver to Jerry. Um, and again, at the end of the day, you know, um, I did my job. You know, uh, I was like I said, I was never really uh, the first 15 plays that were scripted. They were all to Jerry Rice. Um, I just happened to be I just happened to be the beneficiary of the double coverage that he was facing. And that's just, that's just a testament of how great and how good he was, even at uh, later on in that career when people thought he was old and, you know, didn't have it anymore. Um, but obviously with the coverage, you know, um, catered toward him it spoke otherwise. And so I just benefited from the double coverage that he had. And I made the most of the catches that were thrown my way. Yeah. And there were a lot of them. Now, subsequently it was broken by Brandon Marshall, but I, I always just, I thought it was real right. symmetry that, that, that happened in that game. Okay. Right. So your production is without question. Right. The numbers are what the numbers are. Um, but the other thing that always sort of sought to go along with you is there's little, 
I don't know if it's it's friction or whatever it was, but like wherever you were, I, you know, there's the legendary shot of you and and uh, Greg Knapp, the offensive coordinator, on the field in San Francisco. You go to Philadelphia. And there's two things I think of when I think of you as a Philadelphia Eagle. One, coming back from the broken leg to play in Super Bowl 39. And, and honestly, being the best player on the field, nine catches, 122 yards in that game, even right. though the Eagles lost to the, to the Patriots. And then, of course, the infamous uh, driveway workout uh, yeah. after things went sour and there was the incident in the, in the locker room. So take me through the driveway workout. What, what was the motivation to do that while everyone was there trying to figure out what was going, going on with you and the Eagles. Okay, so I was at training camp. I was in training camp. Uh, we were in at Lehigh. Yep. And so uh, Coach Reed and I, we had a bit of a disagreement um, about whether I should be rehabbing or sh- should I have been outside signing autographs for fans. And so for me, my health was most important. Not that I was discounting or discrediting the fans because, you know, during the course of, that that training camp I took time to sign autographs like you know before and after practice and uh, I mean I was like one of the main guys that kind of just was showing love back to the fans and so obviously there were different groups every day different positions every day that were signing autographs and on this particular day obviously it was for receivers but I was still nursing a, a groin injury coming over from San Francisco and I was just trying to you know be as healthy as I could going into uh into the next season and so that's where we had a bit of a disagreement and it ended up being, being a, a kind of a disagreement in front of some people. And so he ended up telling me to go back to my room. And then ultimately he told me to go back home, which was in Morristown, New Jersey. So that's what I did. I went back to my room, packed up my stuff, uh, went back to Morristown, New Jersey. Didn't think too much of it um, once I got home. And then all of a sudden, I think I had been home maybe 20, 30 minutes, about a t- and it's like an hour and a half or so uh, from Lehigh back to New Jersey uh, where I lived. And so I think obviously by the time I got back home, obviously it hit the news um, that I had been sent home. And it was no secret, you know, me being there in Philly for a, a year or so now uh, where I lived. By the time I got home, media had gotten hold of what had happened. Um, I'm in the house for about 20, 30 minutes, um, obviously on the phone. I'm kind of just trying to figure out what to do next. Next thing I know, I hear a knock at the door. I look through my blinds. I look outside. There's news media trucks staked out in front of my yard. I'm like, yo, what is going on? What is going on? So um, some of the parting words that uh Andy Reid had for me um, before he sent me home was he's like, yo, uh, go to your room. He said, you know, we'll be back. We'll let you know uh, how we're going to proceed, you know, from from this. And he said, you know, keep yourself in shape. So that's what I thought of. That's the only reason I went outside (laughs) to entertain the media was that he said, keep yourself in shape. So for me, took it literally, figuratively, however you want to take it, uh, you said. And uh, so I went outside and um, that's what I did. So I, I the, the media wasn't going to go anywhere. I had helicopters flying around my house. Um, I went outside. I kind of shot some free throws or something. I had basketball goal in the yard. So I went out there and did that. I went back in the house and they were not leaving. So I was like, OK, let me just make light of the situation. And I just tried to have fun with it so that I had an ab bench where I continue, you know, obviously my workouts throughout the course of the season. I took it out to the driveway. And uh, if you watch the clip, I had like a little Bluetooth in my ear. So I had my publicist on the line. And so uh, nobody knew that she kind of heard what was saying, you know, the questions. And so she kind of was just blurting out things to kind of as far as what I should respond to. But it wasn't much anyway. So uh, it was all fun um, at the end of the day. And so that's why you have we have the now infamous driveway uh, workout that people talk about. And that led to the interview where you you came up with the slogan "I love me some me." And and when when did you like? I, I have to admit, I'd never heard anybody say anything like that before. And it was like, okay, at, at least you're honest, right? You're you're telling us who right. you are. Right. When did you when did you come up with that one? I love me some me. I don't know. I think it was just so much that had been swirling around. You know who I was as a person, as an athlete. Um, obviously, you know, the media, they basically characterize me in certain, uh, a certain light based on information they had been receiving through maybe a few coaches and some players, uh, here and there. And then, like I said, I, I kind of channeled, um, kind of really the journey in which I had gotten to where I was. I mean, like I told you, when we started this interview, 
I was six, 180 pounds coming out of high school. Trey, I had no idea that I was going to, you know, uh, you know, play beyond the collegiate level and become the player that I did. Um, but, you know, my, my story uh, can be inspiration to a lot of kids that, you know, that, that are wearing the same shoes today. I mean, we never know where our path can, can take us, but I think with my desire, my dedication, my discipline, that's what enabled me to be the hall of famer that I am. And so I took a lot of that criticism, unfair criticism, you know, that the media pegged me with as far as my character and things of that nature, I had it on my shoulder. And so growing up in high school, I got teased. I got picked on. Um, I even said it. In, I wrote a book. I had, you know, a teammate to spit in my mouth. I had all this stuff that was building, um, just kind of just manifesting and, you know, throughout the course of my career. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to be the best athlete that I could be. And I started to build on and enhance on my deficiencies as a receiver. And once I started to, to really believe that I could play at that level and saw that I was able to do some of the things that Jerry Rice did and, not, and probably even better, that's when I started to really have the self-confidence and self-love in myself. And that's where it came from. I love me some me. Even I hate even the, the quote of they hate to love me and they love to hate me. Um, that's where it came from when people honestly. And that's what's so crazy about the media is that they peg people and they categorize people and they spew out things without even knowing the individual. And so that's where I fair, felt like the unfair criticism came from. And some of the stuff that I did, honestly, it was uh, it was a defense mechanism. Um, when I went out there and I played and I played with a chip on my shoulder when I had disagreements with coaches and um, Greg Knapp and Mariucci, um, I didn't I didn't particularly think that, you know, I was one of their guys. Um, you think about things that are happening on in, the, in this world. I, I, I was a victim of that. I felt some of those things that people experience. I may not have said it because I knew at that particular time, if I would have brought these things up, people would have tried to sweep it under the rug. They would have swept it on the rug and they would have been like, oh, well, he's just T.O. being T.O. Uh, he's drumming up all these 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 things. And it's not true and it's not factual. But as I was telling somebody the other day, it's not obvious until it's obvious. But I grew up with a grandmother who was who I was raised uh, under her roof, uh, who was raised in the segregation era, um, experienced racism, discrimination. I knew all of this when I played. But I played with such a chip on my shoulder that I allowed my play to do the speaking and the talking for me. So a lot of what I did, like I said, some of it was a defense mechanism. And a lot of it was just me understanding how the media started to work and how they targeted me. And then I just tried to have fun with the game. Just as the example that I, I made with, with Andy Reid and him telling me, OK, go home, and but keep yourself in shape until we get back. I tried to make light of the situation because, you know, nothing that I that I achieved or obtained, it didn't come easy, Trey. Uh, my grandmother raised me. My mom raised me. I didn't know who my dad was, um, you know, until I was a preteen. And so I had to do it the hard way. I wasn't I wasn't naturally gifted. I wasn't one of those guys like Kobe or LeBron or Michael Jordan that just had a skill set that was just eye popping off the charts. I literally developed myself into the player that I became and I started to take pride. And I, I really, I started to take pride in that regardless of what the perception was, because I knew if I went out and played poorly based on everything that the media was saying about me, it was going to validate whatever that situation was. But I, 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 I honestly, I, I, I deterred um, a lot of that by with the way that I played on the football field. Well, listen, the reason that drive is there is the reason when I'm looking at your phone here, it says Hall of Famer on there, and that's what got you there. So why don't we take one little one little quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about your Hall of Fame experience, because it is different than anyone's ever in the history of Canton, Ohio. We'll get to that with T.O. right after this. Big names are headlining this weekend's UFC 262 card, from Nate Diaz to Michael Chandler, and there will be no shortage of action. DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of USC, has a heavyweight offer for this weekend's fight with 100 to 1 odds. One fighter will be walking away with the belt. Will you be walking away with the cash? Just pick the main event fighter you think will win, and DraftKings Sportsbook will give you 100 to 1 odds on that fight. That's right, bet $1 on selected fighters, and if they win, you win 100 bucks. Look, there's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth has been. And DraftKings Sportsbook is the way to do it. Don't worry if MMA isn't for you. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions on anything from basketball to hockey and so much more. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. 
Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code WINGO to turn $1 into $100 when you bet on a main card fighter to win. Place your bet and watch the fists fly this weekend. That's code WINGO to turn $1 into $100 on select main card fighters for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, and some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right, back with T.O. on this episode of Have Forgotten History. And it took you three tries to get into the Hall of Fame. And I think everyone would agree that that should not have been the case. Your your numbers were a first ballot Hall of Fame career. But you did something very different than anybody has to sort of protest that. You, when you finally got in, did not go to Canton for the induction ceremony. As far as I know, you still have not been to Canton, Ohio, correct? Uh, You are correct. I have not. Okay, so what was your mo? Because you you had a problem with the voting process by the by the writers. So what was the motivation for you to say I don't like the process of the votes? So because of that, I'm not going to go to the place where the Hall of Fame is. Trey, I think if you research, uh, you know, on the mission statements and the motto uh, mantra uh, in which uh, Canton, Ohio, and the Hall of Fame is based uh, based on. Um, those criteria, especially when it comes to, I guess, nominating guys to get into the uh, Hall of Fame and ultimately uh, inducting them, I had checked all those boxes. Um, you said it yourself. You look at statistically where I stood, you know, in 2016, which was the first year that I was nominated, um, and you look at 2017 and 2018, I was second, third, whatever, fourth all time behind the greatest receiver of all time in Jerry Rice. And so um, when they went beyond the scope of everything that the Hall of Fame is supposed to be about and what it embodies, that's where I had a problem with it. Um, Again, I had a problem with it then. I still have a problem with it now. Um, It's flawed. The process is flawed. Um, You look at, you know, the first year um, that I was up in 26, I was up for for nomination in 2016. Um, Clearly, um, you look at the people that went in and then the second year goes by and then Marvin Harrison was 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 uh, up in that same class, and I mentioned him because he came out the same year that I did. Uh, statistically, my stats were better than his. Um, you look at some of the, if you want to, again peg me and and I guess look at my off the field issues compared to some of the things that he had done. And I say that only in comparison, not to just bring him up to throw him under the bus. I understand. But, I'm making, I understand. but, I, but I want to make a comparison because those off the field uh, issues that I had pales in comparison. I've never had a criminal rap sheet. I've never had any off the field issues, run-ins with the law, but they allowed this guy to go in before me. That's where I have a problem because they felt uh, the need to move in a, in a sense, move the goalposts or move the finish line uh, as it related to me getting in. And so that's where I had a problem with it. I felt at, at the first go around, I was disappointed. Not only was I disappointed, but my friends and fans across the world that saw statistically um, where I was and they knew that I should have been in, they felt disappointed. And then when I didn't get in the second year, I felt ultimately disrespected. And then it was almost like I said, a no brainer. Um, and it took uh, some people to really stand up uh, on the table for me. And there were some guys, uh, the guy that just passed uh, not too long ago, I can't think of his name right away, but he stood on the table for me. And I heard um, through some people that were in that room um, about where I was statistically and what I meant to the culture and number one, what I meant to the game. And so when those writers are, are not really adhering to the criteria and they're bringing up other things outside of the scope of that to prevent guys from going in, that's that's not a fair that's not a fair system that's not a fair play and that's where that's that not that I needed to make a stance but I I wasn't I did I wasn't going to feel comfortable I talked to my family I talked to my friends they weren't going to feel comfortable going to the Hall of Fame understanding that it was more personal than me being measured on my body of work right and that's that's fair here's the only right. thing I would say and I, I don't know if I, I really don't know if anybody's ever asked you this or talked to you about it like to me, they're two separate things. They're the writers who elect people mm-hmm. into the Hall of Fame, 
And then there's the town of Canton, Ohio, and the Hall of Fame itself. Right. And, and you know, I've been fortunate to go there for 20 plus years and cover the induction ceremony. And this, the city of Canton, Ohio, puts on a show like you would not believe. They they right. they treat these Hall of Famers every year as royalty. It is the biggest thing in their lives, and they well, all volunteer I would, I, to I do this. Say, I wouldn't say treat them like royalty when guys. Uh, or ultimately they're inducted into the Hall of Fame and they have to come out of the pocket just to throw parties, you know, for themselves. That's okay, not okay, that, okay, that's that, not, that, uh, that's, okay, that's that's fair. I, I guess what I'm saying being, is, right, I, but that's I not feel being I treated as royalty, but I understand, I, yeah, what the, I understand what camp, what, what Canton, um, what it represents. I understand, uh, yeah, it, it's connected to the National Football League, and I don't understand why. The National Football League, it makes more money than basketball and baseball combined. And you think about there would be no National Football League without the guys that are being put in put in. No, into no, camp. no question. No question. So why wouldn't the National National Football League be able to funnel some type of grand celebration to treat those guys that are made that have made up the game for a hundred years like royalty, uh, like you ultimately said, but that's where I have a problem with the Hall of Fame. Okay, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that's fair, and that, that seems like an NFL question. My only thing was I, I felt like the, the town got penalized for something that they didn't do and the people yeah, and, and the I volunteers for something Overall. that they didn't do. Right, I, no, but I got penalized too, and I got characterized to be someone uh, that I wasn't. And that's what ultimately, like I said, led to my decision. It has nothing to do with the people in in, in Canton, by no means. Uh, that has nothing to do with that. When you have people put in place uh, to represent uh, the Hall of Fame and Canton in itself, that you're 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 referencing that that's supposed to be so glamorous and the elite of the elitist, then they should have an infrastructure that reflects that, not the opposite. Yeah, I, I get. I, look, I. Like like you said earlier, mm -hmm. people need to walk in somebody else's shoes. So I'm not going to say right. what you did was right. It was what you did. I just felt bad for the people that were ready to say, "Hey, Tio, we love you, and this would have been great." And we would. I would hope at some point. Right. I would hope for you that that you would get there because I I think you'd feel differently about it if you went. That that's all. That's all. Well, I'm saying. I mean, I've heard that, and, and people you know have said you know made the comments that he's going to regret it. He's going to miss it. Um, he missed an opportunity. And I always say to that, you know, how can you miss something that you never, ever experienced? And Joe Horrigan was, uh, he, he, he spearheaded a lot of that um, as to um, even just, you know, why I felt like um, I didn't get announced. Uh, he made that decision. And, it, and a lot of people don't know. There was group discussion. There was a, a pact that was made between myself, uh, David Baker, that if anything were to happen uh, out of the ordinary, we were going to discuss that before it was gone, you know, before it was, you know, uh, leaked to the media, all this. And so a lot of people that I spoke to, uh, David, Michelle, they were kind of miffed a little bit because Joe Horgan went off on a on his own had an interview with a guy and he re he he released that uh he wasn't going to announce me during that ceremony or what have you which is fine it was weird so, it was weird i was right. there it was weird and right and then yeah. you think about the all-time uh you know all the the hundred greatest uh athletes that are you know that played this game um how can you not include me on that list and i'm right behind Jerry Rice. I'm two and three, um, but you put some other guys whose st who statistics, you know, I doubled, um, but I don't get in, I don't get on that list. Joe Horgan was a part of that process as well. So again, I have my reasons to feel the way that I do and the way that I did um, at the, at the end of the day, um, like I said, I'm my, my family's happy there. They don't have any, any ill, no qualms or nothing about the decision that I made. And honestly, that's all that matters because everything that I did on that football field was for my family. And so I, I appreciate, well, again, do I appreciate the honor uh, of being in the hall of fame and what I've accomplished then absolutely. Um, but I felt like I should, you know, what I deserved was rightfully being uh, in there when I should have. Yeah, I, I just, I, I know regret's probably not a word you use a lot. Uh, I, I just yeah. hope, I hope for your sake uh, that you get there once, just for me. I, I, I would, I would like to is, see you go. I was one, like, again, if you look at, um, I played in four, I think three to four Hall of Fame games. And I think only one time did I go through the Hall of Fame. Um, my second time was probably uh, the orientation 
um, in 2016 when I was when I was pondering my decision of whether I was going to go or not. Uh, I had a good friend that, you know, um, marketing guy, Doug Sanders, that basically encouraged me to go because he said, you know what, just go T, go through the orientation. You may have a change of heart. I'm like, all right, cool. I took it upon myself to at least give it an opportunity, give it a shot to see if I had a change of heart, change of mind. And based on what I saw, what I experienced, it didn't move me one bit. So back to the games that I played at, at the Hall of Fame, I never went through there because I didn't. I never thought I was going to be a Hall of Famer. I never followed the game prior to playing football and never really knew any football greats. I only knew of the NFL, especially the main person that I knew was probably Jerry Rice. And that was like my junior. I didn't even follow football like that. Um, my junior year was the first time I think I watched uh, an NFL football game and that was uh, a Monday night game I think the Niners were playing I think the Chargers or some team and that's when I got a glimpse of who Jerry Rice was and I think he may have been playing with Joe Montana at the time so football was never on my list or just you know uh, of, of things that I felt like you know I could go on and play you know had the ability to play at that at that, that level um, I was just a kid just playing a number of sports like any teenage kids. Um, and I just, again, football kind of found me. And then I developed a love and a passion uh, for the sport, as I probably would have with anything that I that I put my mind to. And then obviously, like I said, the result is, you know, where I am now. Again, I just I, it's my hope. It's my hope. I'm, I'm going to try and make this happen, that you get there at some point and it all works out. I, no, no, so trust enough, me, I enough get of, it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. All right, so so enough of that. Tell me what you're doing now. You're you're you're, you're doing some NFT stuff, right? With your touchdown celebrations, some digital um, yeah. art. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I've kind of I'm not well versed in uh, in the space, but I'm starting to learn more and more uh, about about the community, uh, the NFT community. Uh, but I think this is again, this is a, a platform where people like myself, you think about musicians, entertainers, artists, or what have you. This is a situation where they're able to own their name and likeness and, and their rights to what they produce and things that they've done. And so there are so many memorabilia uh, scam artists out here that are duplicating and uh, forging you know, autographs and selling them. This is a way to kind of minimize a lot of that. And then at the same time, for me and what I've done with my museum and my, gal uh, my gallery, um, I'm, I'm giving artists opportunities to collaborate, you know, to discover different artists, just like, you know, you look at, I guess I can use the analogy of, you know, me being, being drafted into the National Football League. Nobody really knew how good or great I was going to be. Uh, the same with an NFT uh, platform. Um, there's a number of great artists out there that we don't even know about. But me giving them the opportunity to collaborate, um, who's to know or who's to say that, you know, we may just discover the, the, the next, you know, Michelangelo or some, you know, yeah. uh, great artists out there. So that's what I've been doing with that. And uh, it's been it's been great so far. And you're into winemaking now. Is that also what I hear? Absolutely. Over the during the pandemic, um, obviously, I think, you know, it has allowed all of us to kind of explore different options based on what we were limited to do. And so this opportunity, uh, organic opportunity came about. Uh, I have a marketing rep out of uh, New York uh, who's a. Uh, has a mutual friend with the Lasorda family. And so he connected with them and asked me if I wanted to possibly collaborate with Mr. Tom Lasorda, the great late uh, Mr. T uh, Tom Lasorda. And so he asked me if I drank wine and I was like, uh, I do a little bit, but not, not much. And so there was an opportunity that they wanted to collaborate with a number of athletes. Uh, I was one of the top guys on their list. And so I said, you know, you know what, send me some samples. Um, I talked to, I talked to the winemaker, talked to the uh, operations manager. Um, they basically kind of got my my experiences with wine or Cabernets for for that matter. And being, you know, uh, drafted in, in San Francisco in, in, in 92 uh, in 96, rather, and then being in Napa Valley and being exposed to wine country, uh, I remember my first uh, kind of experience as a rookie going to a uh, going to a, a, a charity event, and I tasted wine for the first time, and I really didn't like the taste of it. It was bitter. It was dry. Um, again, coming from the South, you know, and, and, and in the Black community, we're not known for really drinking wine, uh, especially my grandmother. She drank, but, you know, it was nothing, you know, wine related. 
So that was the experience and exchange that I got, you know, and I gave them as far as my experience. And so those are some of the things that we tweaked and we came up with my wine, which is 81. Um, you think about. Shocker. Um, <laughs> exactly. So if you go to the website, 81vino.com, it'll kind of give you the history, kind of how we came about this whole process. Uh, me going to Paso Robles, um, going to the winery, the Lavigne winery uh, up there in that area. And then um, I was I was very creative with even with the website, you know, obviously Kobe Bryant, rest in peace, a good friend of mine. I realized that he was into wine. So that's where the vino that the vino came into play as far as uh, as far as the website uh, is concerned. But when you think about the ingredients, the tasting notes of my Cabernet, the characteristics of Cabernets anyway, is big, bold and it's dry. I possess. Sounds familiar. All- yeah, I, I possess all of that trait besides the dry. I definitely, I'm definitely not a dry individual. But when it comes to big and bold, hey, we got something going. So that, I told that is them, a fact. <laughs> so I gave them sort of like my fruits. They asked me what fruits that I like or what have you. So they incorporated that into the wine. Um, they obviously know that I. They knew that I didn't like it being bitter or dry. So my cab is a cab blend. So it's 95 percent cab. 5% Syrah, and Syrah is an element that kind of softens up the wine a bit, makes it a little bit smoother on the palate. Um, so again, it's made with a, a ripe black cherry, uh, plum preserves, a hint of cinnamon stick aromas, and dark chocolate and spicy toasted oak. So I had to become a little bit knowledgeable um, throughout this whole process with the winemaker, Terry Colton, uh, who also is the winemaker for the Lasorda family wines as well. So that's where the 81 wine uh, came into play. Well, well here's let, let, let's end it here. I look forward to the day where you and I will look at some of your NFT while sipping some of that 81 Cab Syrah at a restaurant in Canton, Ohio. Deal? Oh my gosh! You, you, yeah, you said yeah. I like I like the idea. I like the sound See? of that. I, I like we're, the sound of that. Bring it all. We're bringing it all together. I'll tell you this: you were never boring, and and you still aren't, and and that's what makes you a fun guest. So listen, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you pulling over the side of the road, and continued success in, in, in all you do. And uh, let's stay in touch, okay? Absolutely, anytime. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So once again, thanks to Terrell Owens for joining us on Half Forgotten History. And again, I really hope someday he and I sit down looking at his NFTs while sipping some of his wine and enjoying the full Hall of Fame experience in Canton, Ohio. I just hope he gets there and hope he understands what a big deal it is one of these days. But coming up next, we'll switch from football to the links and talk to a man who is the answer to an ultimate golf trivia question that you may not even know, Harris English. We'll see him next week on Half Forgotten History.